It's one of the great images that God gives us in His Word of Christ as an anchor from the book of Hebrews. And if you've ever been to the garden tomb, uh, which is um, just feet away, yards away, I suppose, you could say from Golgotha, just as the Scripture indicates. And I give 15 reasons when I go to the garden tomb in Golgotha why that's an original place, though our Roman Catholic friends obviously think differently. But uh, if you go into the garden tomb, you'll see an anchor on the wall, and it was a symbol that Christians would often use to express our anchor, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so He is our sure and steady anchor. You know, when you sing hymns, it's important to understand the theology behind them, and that's why so much of the music today is just nonsense because there's no theological basis anymore in the church. And so people don't want to sing even some of the great hymns of the faith because they don't understand what they mean because the Scripture is no longer, sadly, being taught. That's not to say that we shouldn't have new hymns. The Bible says, commands us to sing a new song unto the Lord. So there's a place for new hymns but they need to be theologically sound. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Now as to the times and the epics, brethren, you have no need for anything to be written to you. For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. While they are saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child, and they will not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness that the day should overtake you like a thief. For you are all sons of light and sons of day. We are not of night nor of darkness. So then, let us not sleep as others do, but let us be alert and sober. For those who sleep do their sleeping at night, and those who get drunk get drunk at night. But since we are of the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and as a helmet the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but for obtaining salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we will live together with Him. Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another, just as you are doing. Our Father, we look forward to the day of the Lord when it will come, for we know it is initiated by the rapture of the church. What a great promise you've given us that in the twinkling of an eye, we will be changed. This perishable will put on the imperishable. This mortality will put on immortality. That you have prepared a body for us like the Lord Jesus and a place for us in which righteousness will reign. We know that until that time, you've given us as your people a commission to win the lost and to build the save. So help us tonight as we study basic discipleship, all that that encompasses, all that that means. We gird up our minds for action. We come in great dependency upon the Spirit of God to be our teacher, our leader. Thank you for the word that he gave perfectly through the man who wrote it. Now may he illumine it to our hearts that we might be changed by it. And we'll give you the praise and the honor in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, I'm glad you're here tonight. I hope you picked up a handout. You have to pick up your own each week. We will not pass them out. Uh, But if you did receive a handout, uh, you can see this is topic number two. This is a course called Basic Discipleship. We offer it here actually every Sunday morning when we are in session. Uh, We call it the Discovery Class. And it usually takes 45, 50 weeks to go through There are 21 total handouts that you will receive by the time we're done with the course. Some handouts just take a week. Some, like the first one, typically takes four weeks. The one that we're on tonight typically takes three weeks. And I should say parenthetically, excuse me, if you have questions along the way, feel free to uh, submit them. Just leave them here in the pulpit and I will address them uh, in due time, if not that very night. So you can see the subject tonight, topic number two, is experiencing forgiveness and fellowship with God. We have seven objectives 
as we work through this handout. Um, as a result of our study, we want to be able to, one, to understand the doctrine of sin as it relates to actions and attitudes and doubtful things. Secondly, we want to be able to relate four governing principles to what is sometimes referred to as gray areas, or sometimes it's called disputable matters, or sometimes even doubtful things. We also want to study three forces that wage war against the true child of God. We want to distinguish between positional and experiential forgiveness. We want to recognize the importance of confession and keeping our lives clear and clean before God. We also want to be able to discern the difference between real guilt and false guilt. And as always, with each of these handouts, to memorize two verses of Scripture that will help the Christian to consistently walk in fellowship with God. These are just rock-bottom truths that we're studying in this course. These are like non-negotiables. These are the truths you want your children to know and to bleed by the time they leave your home if they're 18, 19, 20 years of age. We would have our children go through it first when they were 12 and then when they were seniors in high school. So these are really critical things. And if you introduce someone to Christ or you have a granddaughter or grandson and you have an opportunity to teach them God's Word, these are like basic truths. These are the things you want them to understand. So by way of introduction tonight, we want to explore the doctrine of sin. Notice what I've written here. It says, in a day when people think truth is relative or cannot be discovered at all, their tendency is to describe sin as psychological maladjustments, errors in judgment, or sometimes as glandular malfunctions. So it's important that we define sin biblically. So let's start right there with a definition of sin. What do we mean? And we're going to highlight three aspects of it. First, sin is a failure to do what is right. Turn to the book of James, to the book of James. James is a short little book. Uh, it'll take you about 15 minutes to read through. He was actually an apostle. We don't usually think of James as an apostle, but he was appointed in a, as an apostle after the resurrection, much like Paul was. So, you know, you have the 12 and, of course, Matthias who replaced Judas Iscariot under the providence of God there in the upper room. And you have Paul, you have James, and some would certainly include Barnabas. That would make for 15 apostles in the New Testament. In either case, uh, James is the half-brother of Christ, grew up in the same home as the Lord Jesus. And what changed his life, of course, was the resurrection. And Christ made a special appearance to James, as Paul highlights in 1 Corinthians 15. He appeared to Peter, to James, and then to all the apostles. Uh, to over 500, he'll say at one time, and last of all, he said he appeared to me. James chapter 4, and um, why don't we um, pick it up here in verse uh, 13. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow... We will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You're just a vapor that appears for a little while and vanishes away. It's a beautiful picture. There are many images that God gives the believer of the shortness of life. He says life is faster than a weaver's shuttle. The Scripture says life is like the flower that sprouts up or the grass that grows and then they suddenly fade. And here, of course, he says it's like a vapor. You go outside on a cold day and you blow your breath on those first cool winter days in South Carolina, September days in other parts of the country, and you see that vapor and then it's gone. We used to love to do that as kids. Hey, we can see our breath this morning. But compared to eternity, that's really what life is like. It's just a vapor. It's there for a moment, and then it's gone when you put it up against eternity. Yet we will see in our study of basic discipleship that the way you invest your vapor will determine your reward as a Christian, all things being equal when you came to Christ, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So um, he just reminds us how temporal life is and that we need to be in the will of God, doing the will of God. 
Moses said, Lord, teach me to number my days that I might present to you a heart of wisdom. He also wrote that our years are 70, day, 70 years or if due to strength, 80. So it's a short time that we are here. I have a friend who's a pastor in North Carolina, and um, he would take, uh, he has a big jar on his desk, and it's filled with marbles. And he said, well, the average male lives 77 years, and so he had a marble for every month, and he started this like 25 years ago. I don't know how many marbles he has left. He's a couple of years older than I am. We went to the same seminary, and uh, he had this heavy jar of marbles, but it's getting lighter and lighter and lighter. And one of these days, we're all going to lose our marbles, all right? It's just going to, it's going to end. Instead, he says, verse 15, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. So there's this attitude of dependency if God wills. Paul will say to the Corinthians, I will come to you if the Lord wills. That's humility. He'll say to the same church, I hope to remain with you for some time if the Lord wills. Or in the opening chapter of the book of Romans, he said, perhaps at last by the will of God I may come to you. So there's that humility, you know, God willing, and I don't think you have to literally put that on the end of every statement, but it ought to be in your heart. God willing, I will do such and such tomorrow. You just don't assume that you're the sovereign of your life, that you have a God who is over it. Uh, the, if you read some of the old Puritans, as I do from time to time, uh, sometimes they will uh, sign their manuscript or they would sign their letters DV for Deo Volente, Deo being God, Volente will, meaning basically, if God so wills. And so James picks it up here in verse 17, therefore, to the one who knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. Now, we often use this verse to define sins of omission versus commission. You know the difference. Sins of omission is when you don't do something that... Um, you're not doing something that God specifically commands you to do. And sins of commission is when you do something that God tells you not to do. And that's certainly an accurate description, I think, of, of that turmoil that we all face. Paul describes it in Romans 7. I'm just going to turn there. You don't have to unless you want to. But in Romans 7, this is a familiar passage to many of us, and it describes the relationship between omission and commission and the war between the flesh and the spirit. And he says in verse 15 of Romans 7, for what I am doing I do not understand, but I am practicing what I would, I am not practicing what I would like to do. I'm doing the very thing I hate. But if I do the very thing I do not want to do. I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. So now, no longer am I the one doing it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that the nothing good dwells in me. That is in my flesh, for the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I want, I do not do. I practice the very evil I do not want. And so you, you see this turmoil within the believer. Why? Because when you're born again, you don't shed your old nature, you still have it. You still have an old sinful fallen nature. And so there should be this attitude of dependence, if the Lord wills, because apart from Him, I can do nothing. And Paul will say, of course, in the next chapter, Romans 8, that it's the Spirit of Christ who gives me victory over the flesh. And so, very clearly, there are some things that are wrong, there are some things that are right. And I don't think you can definitively say that this verse is describing, per se, sins of omission because of the first word in the verse, therefore. He's really saying, look, this is what I want you to do, therefore. It's a command to do something specifically, but it's a legitimate application, I think, for sins of omission. But James is just underscoring here that we are to do the will of God. Why? Because there is a will of God. There are things that God definitively describes as right and things that He describes as wrong. And so sin is a failure to do what is right. To the one who knows to do the right thing and then does not do it, 
It's sin. Now, it's true that some people are in ignorance. When I was a new Christian, I didn't know, say, to tithe. I didn't know I should tithe. I didn't even know what a, what a tithe was. I wasn't living in sin. I was just living in ignorance. But as I grew in Christ and I learned what the Scripture taught, then I was obedient in that realm. And so it is with hundreds and hundreds of commands that God unfolds for us as we grow up in Christ. Okay, point two there in your outline, sin is also a transgression of God's law. Sin is a transgression of God's law. Uh, you're in James, just turn to the right, and you'll soon be in 1 John, just a few pages over. 1 John, and turn to chapter 3, if you will, 1 John chapter 3. Let's pick it up in, uh, let's just give it some context. Let's look in verse 1. Apostle John writes, see how great a love the Father has bestowed on us that we should be called children of God, and such we are. For this reason, the world does not know us because it did not know him. See how great a love. What a marvelous love that God would deem us children of God. Now, obviously, in a creative sense, Malachi and Acts affirm that we are all children of God, but in a spiritual sense, the Scripture is clear that only those who have come into a right relationship with God through Christ, as he's already described in the book, have been given the right to be called children of God. And so most of you know John 1.12, but as many as received him, to them he gave the right to be called children of God, even, or that is, to those who believe in His name, that to receive Him is to believe in His name, and His name stands for all that He is, His Lord and Savior. So God the Father calls us children of God, and I should say, too, that in other Scripture, God the Son calls us children of God when we come into right relationship. He says He's not called afraid or ashamed to call us brethren, and the Spirit of God calls us children of God. We studied it some a few weeks back how the Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we've been called children of God. Verse 2, keep reading. Beloved, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. We know that when He appears, we will be like Him. We sang that tonight in one of the hymns that Matt gave us. We know that when He appears, we will be like Him because we will see Him just as He is. And everyone who has his hope fixed on him purifies himself just as he is pure. So we know there's coming a day when we will see Jesus, the trumpet will sound, the dead in Christ will come out of the grave first, we who are alive will be caught up with them, we'll see the Lord, we'll meet the Lord in the air, and in a moment's time we'll be transformed. Now he, he tells us that we are children, and it's not appeared as if yet all that will be in the future. We know some things, but as Paul says, we see dimly right now. But someday it will become a reality, and we'll see very, very clearly. And of course, everyone who has this hope fixed on the Lord purifies himself as he is pure. When you live with the reality that Jesus is coming back, it changes the way you live. Verse 4, everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness. And so here's a simple definition. Sin is lawlessness. He's defining sin here at its most basic root. It's a disregard for the law of God. It's an inherent disregard for the lawmaker, the Lord God himself. And sometimes I should say even parenthetically, because remember, he's writing to Christians Sometimes we don't really see victory over sin because we don't call it sin. We call it a mistake or, hey, if I was wrong, when you know you're wrong. Um, and the first step, really, among other things, to living a holy life is to recognize sin for what it is. And we'll discuss that further as we work through this handout. That's the very nature of confession itself acknowledge sin for what it is, and sin is lawlessness. And as we move towards the end of the age, there is coming a man, of course, he has already said in chapter 2, children, it's the last time, looking at verse 18, and just as you've heard that Antichrist is coming, that one world leader, even now many Antichrists have appeared from this, we know it's the last hour. 
And so there are people who have always been against Christ, but there is a world leader coming, the Antichrist. You know, one of 33 titles that is given to him, one of them is he's called the man of lawlessness. And the spirit of Antichrist will precede the Antichrist himself. And so there will be growing lawlessness, growing violence, growing immorality, growing homosexuality. These are the very things that Scripture predicts before and during the time of the Antichrist on the earth. And the fact that we're seeing these things in our day should make a Christian like super alert as to what is actually going on. I was on a conference call. I'm on a board of a group out in California, and and we have a meeting every so often, and they had 250 or so people on the conference call with us today, and they're asking questions about one thing or another. And all I said to them, because some of these people were just hoping for a revival, I said, well, we should pray for a revival. But I said, understand, a revival may not come. God could send a revival, but he also might just send his son. So it has nothing to do with unbelief. Oh, 2 Chronicles 7.14, if God's people humble themselves and God's going to heal our land. Well, contextually, the promise is in reference to Israel. And the land that he's going to heal is the land of Israel. Now, is there a biblical application? Well, sure, righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. But in the end, there will be no revival. Now, it doesn't change the way I should live. I am to preach God's Word. You are to share God's Word as God opens doors and gives you opportunity. But sin is lawlessness. You know, that just seems to be ignored in our day. We've got this movement, and I've just been getting showered with questions on the Black Lives Matter movement. And I will try to address it at some time. But let me just say parenthetically, there's a difference between the Black Lives Matter movement, the organization, and the truth that Black Lives Matter because the organization itself is atheistic, it's Marxist, it goes against the traditional family, it espouses homosexuality, transgenderism. The three leaders and founders of it, one's a lesbian, one's a transgender, and one is an agender person. There's lawlessness behind it. So Christians, some of them are very foolishly marching for the group when God would say, come and let us be separate, saith the Lord. Should you speak up for the fact that men are made in the image of God? Yes, that all life is sacred, yes. But there's a difference between that and the spirit of lawlessness And it's not just black people that are expressing this lawlessness. There's probably more whites who are expressing the lawlessness than there are blacks as you see these lootings and these burnings and everything else that's happening. But it's something that is going to precede the last days. And yet God says sin is lawlessness, and people say they have a right to this. It's freedom of expression. It's not freedom of expression. It's lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness, period. So we need to call it what it is. Then he says, um, sin is lawlessness and makes a very, very plain statement. Everyone who practices lawlessness, everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. And then he says here in 3.5, you know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him sins. No one who sins has seen him or know him. Little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin or lawlessness is of the devil. For the devil has sinned from the beginning. The Son of God appeared for this purpose, to destroy the works of the devil." 
So Christ came to take away sin. And of course, there are three expressions of his taking away sin in Scripture. He takes away the penalty of sin the moment you're saved. We call that justification. He is working on taking away the power of sin in your life. That's spiritual growth. We call that sanctification. And someday he will come and take away the very presence of sin. We just read when we see him, we'll be just like him. It's called glorification. But I can no more take away the penalty of sin or the power of sin or the presence of sin by myself. I can't do it. God has to do it, but he wants to do it through us. And of course, again, he's dealing with the one who abides in him. No one who abides in him sins. Some of the paraphrased translations capture the Greek verb properly. No one who abides in him sins as a way of life. He's not saying we don't sin. Give the guy credit. He just said in 1 John 1.8 and 1 John 1.10 that Christians sin, and therefore we are to confess our sins. And if we say we don't sin, we're calling God a liar. But he is speaking about a new lifestyle. And so if you were here for the last session, we spoke to the fact that there are certain signs or outward workings that give evidences that a person is born again. All right, so sin is lawlessness. It's a violation of the law. It's doing what God tells us not to do. Look at Ephesians 2. Again, we're just defining sin in a day where everything's up for grabs. Look at Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians 2. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Look at Ephesians 2, and notice, if you will, verse 1. And you were dead in your trespasses and sins. We must never forget what we were. We were dead. And he will go on, starting around verse 6, and he'll say, but he made you alive, for by grace you've been saved. He made us alive. He's already described in the first chapter how positionally we are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. But we're dead, spiritually speaking. It doesn't mean that a person is dead physically, that a person is dead psychologically, but spiritually, in the most vital part of life, we're dead. How were we dead? He says specifically, in our trespasses and sins. The word trespass is a Greek word. It's a compound Greek word that literally means a false step. So there's a distinction between a trespass and a sin. He said we're dead in trespasses and sins. And so a trespass is a false step. It's to go against a known path. It's to veer from what God specifically said. But he also said we're dead in our sins. While we're on the thought, go to Romans chapter 6 for a moment. Romans chapter 6. So as you're working with a new believer, you're getting him to turn to these passages. Why? Because he needs to begin to learn his way around the Bible. That's why we never use slides, as I said a few weeks ago, for the discovery class, because we want people to learn their Bible. You can't do that with an electronic Bible. It's a real deficit. You can type in Romans 6.23, and it will bring you there. But you're not going to learn your way around Scripture unless you have a hard copy, and that will never change. Romans 6, and um, if you remember, he has said, uh, Romans 3, I said, I said Romans 6, Romans 3, and notice, if you will, uh, but now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been manifested, verse 21 being witnessed by the law and the prophets. God's righteousness, which we do not have because he's just described in verses 10 to 18 what we call the depravity of man. The doctrine of total depravity is not that man is as bad as he can be, but man is as bad off as he can be. It doesn't mean that man doesn't do good. Many lost people do good things. How so? Because of the influence of salt and light through the church. And of course, when the restrainer is removed, 2 Thessalonians 2, when the church is gone and the Holy Spirit's presence in the church is instantly gone, hell will have a holiday. Sin will be widespread like man has never seen before. But Paul just affirms here, apart from the law, apart from your obedience, verse 21, the righteousness of God has been made known, manifested. It's witnessed by the law and the prophets, and he just quoted the law and the prophets in 10 to 18. So he's reminding us that what he is saying is not a unique Pauline doctrine. It's taught in the Old Testament. 
even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there's no distinction. No distinction between what? No distinction contextually between Jews and Greeks. He opened the chapter, what advantage, what advantage is there to being a Jew? What benefit is circumcision? Well, great in every respect. First of all, as a Jew, God entrusted you with the oracles of God. The Jews were the keepers of God's law, both Old and New Testaments. They managed the Old Testament, and they still do in a sacred way. They stored them in what it's called arks. If you go to uh, a synagogue, in every synagogue, there's an ark. Not an ark like Noah's ark, but a, a, a big box. And in it, they keep the sacred scrolls. And every Sabbath, they take them out. And if you go to the Western Wall, they've got dozens of arks. I shouldn't say dozens, but at least a dozen arks. At least, I've never counted them, but they line up a whole wall right to the left of the Western Wall there in that tunnel. Why? Because the Scripture was sacred, and they wanted it to be protected and cared for and revered. And every writer of the New Testament, including Luke, was a Jew. And so they gave us, they, they were entrusted by God, so there was great advantage to being a Jew. But then, of course, he goes on to say that make, just being a Jew doesn't make you righteous. So there's no distinction. doesn't matter if you're a Jew and he quotes from their own scriptures to prove it, or a Gentile, there's no distinction. And we usually omit that phrase from the heart of verse 23, because all have sinned for or because God, all have sinned, all fall short of the glory of God. Now, the word sin is used in three different forms in the New Testament. There's the verb hamatano that describes the action of sin. There's the noun hamatia that describes the act of sin, the product of sin. And then there's the adjective hamatolos that describes the one doing the sin, the sinner. But the essence of the word means to miss the mark. It was used in archery in the first century, and I was in a discussion with a rabbi recently, and he reminded me that's just the same way we used it in ancient Hebrew of someone who would aim at a target and they would miss the mark. They sinned. So understand, putting these two words together, sin is a transgression of the law. It's violating a known standard that God has given us, and it is falling short of doing what God has asked us to do. So he's basically saying before God, we're both rebels and we're failures. So he's defining it in very, very specific terms. And that's important because we're all over the map today in so-called evangelicalism, and I'm not sure we can use the term evangelical anymore. I was in a discussion with some guys at a seminary in, in the Midwest, and we're talking about, should we call ourselves evangelicals? I said, I don't know, because people who call themselves evangelicals now just about mean everything by it. We're all over the map with the term. And so you have progressive Christians, as they call them. And so Christianity Today, which was kind of the Time magazine of the Christian faith, when it came out in the 1950s, Carl F.H. Henry, who was a very godly man. I met him once. I was privileged to meet him when he was in his 80s. And he and Dr. Billy Graham started this magazine called Christianity Today. And it was just a solid Christian magazine. Well, today it promotes as much apostasy as it does truth. And so just last week, they came out in their most recent edition, hailing the fact that now the majority of evangelical Christians believe that women should be pastors. And of course, in the online article, a lot of true evangelicals said, well, in a short time, the majority of evangelicals will be saying it's okay to be transgender, or the majority of evangelicals will say it's okay to be homosexual. So the majority doesn't rule. God rules. His word rules, and truth is to rule. And so God defines sin in very specific terms. Let's look at a couple examples. 1 Corinthians 6. And, you know, again, we live in a day of relativism. 
And people will literally ask me, well, do you really think homosexuality is a sin? And you need to be able to go to certain passages of Scripture and to define it because the spirit of lawlessness rationalizes sin. So in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul says, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Of course, people who are deceived, the nature of deception is they don't know they're deceived. That's what makes deception, deception. Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals. Now, there's some basic terms there. Porneia, fornication. It refers, it's a general term for sexual immorality. Sometimes it's used very specifically of premarital sex or any kind of sensuality outside of marriage. Uh, it's used in a technical, term, in technical way. And so Jesus in Matthew 15 says, out of the heart of man comes fornications and adulteries. Obviously, he's got two different categories in mind. He's not repeating himself. Um, the Pharisees in John 8 said, well, we weren't born of porneia. We weren't born of fornication, meaning you're here, Jesus, because before Mary and Joseph were betrothed, your mother got pregnant. And so that rumor was floating around 30 years later when he's in full-time ministry in the temple region. So he speaks of fornication, but it's a general word for sensuality, more specifically premarital sex, idolatry, idolaters. A third of the world practices traditional idolatry. Understand you go to a country like India, in every corner you look at, there is sheer idolatry. And of course, India, it's expected in another 18 months will be larger population-wise than China. I remember seeing this skinny, broken man look like he was on death's door. You could count the number of ribs in his skin. He just had like gym shorts on, and there he was taking milk, and he was pouring it at the base of the tree to worship his tree god. And then my pastor friend brought me to the place he went to school. I said, what's all this stuff? Oh, those are all offerings to the many gods they worship. So about a third of the world still practices traditional idolatry where they worship the created thing rather than the creator, but there are other forms of idolatry. Paul can say in Colossians, greed and sexual immorality is idolatry. And people live sometimes for money. People live for illicit sex. So he speaks of fornicators, idolatry, nor adulterers, moikeia. It's a term that refers to extramarital sex. Nor effeminate, that's the word that's typically used for the passive partner in a homosexual relationship, so with both males and females. She's the husband, she's the wife, he's the man, she's the woman. Homosexuals, thieves, nor the covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers. And again, we, we rationalize these words. Well, he's not a drunkard. He's an alcoholic. I don't think so. Not according to the Word of God. If he practices the use of alcohol and becomes, he's a drunkard. Again, you can't help people, really help them, unless you identify sin for what it's at. If he's just an alcoholic, if it's just a disease, then he's really not responsible. Nor revilers, nor swindlers. We've been watching these revilers, right, all over the news. I mean, hundreds of people, a thousand in one place or more, they said, no masks on, they're loaded, they're drunk there in England, the pubs have opened, they're having a big time. That's what the Scripture describes. Nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. So he's defining sin in some very specific terms. And of course, the promise is such were some of you. God can save anyone. So don't ever like look at a person and say, that transgender person is beyond salvation because they're not. God can save anyone. One of our members has been witnessing to two lesbian women 
And it appears one, she gave him, would you like to know God as your friend, has come to faith. She wants to move out. See, God can save anyone. God can change anyone. But I'm telling you, one of the things that God hates is when children are harmed and destroyed. And I'm not sure how much longer God's going to put up with this nonsense. This guy says, well, I'm I'm a man in a woman's body. I'm a woman in a man's body. Well, I was a man in a woman's body, and then I was born. <laughs> but listen, we've got all these distortions, you know, and the, these parents, you know, who in Greenville, they had 200 kids in the library pre-COVID for this drag queen to come in and to read these children stories, a man dressed up like a woman, and their parents are bringing the kids to this event like it's something that we should really relish. God hates these things. And people will meet God in his wrath if they do not repent. So sin is described in some very specific ways. Uh, In terms of actions, uh, we might just look at Galatians while we're here, a similar passage, Galatians 5, just to pick it up contextually in verse 16, but I say, walk by the Spirit that you will not carry out the desire of the flesh. The term flesh, of course, sarks in the New Testament is used to describe either the skin that covers your skeleton or worldly point of view, or worldly perspective. Paul says, I no longer view men according to the flesh. From a worldly point of view, I once viewed Christ that way, and I assessed he was not God, and so he persecuted the church. But most often, the term flesh is used in the New Testament to describe the sin nature. And so some of your translations will paraphrase it, and they'll say the sinful nature. But that's the essence of it here in this context. Walk by the Spirit that you won't carry out the desires of the sinful nature of the flesh. For the flesh, the sinful nature, sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. These are in opposition to one another so that you may not do the things that you please. In other words, when you're born again, there's a new war within that you didn't have before you were born again. And so there's a restlessness over sin that you didn't have before. For the flesh sets its desire against the spirit, the spirit against the flesh. But if you are led by the spirit, you're not under the law. Now the deeds of the flesh, the works of the sinful nature are evident. Again, here's a list, immorality, impurity, sensuality. You ought to, when you go through a list like this, just get a dictionary and look them up. A Webster's would be as good as anything, though that may change because there are some new definitions in Webster's that are highly questionable. Uh, But Daniel Webster uh, was a godly, godly man who produced the first Webster's Dictionary. But usually the the word in the English text is representative of a truth in our day. But if you really want to be specific, get get yourself a Bible dictionary. And that would be helpful to know the distinctions between these words. Immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, that's one that pharmakia, We get our word pharmacy from it. People say, well, it's not in the Bible that I can't smoke pot. Here it is right here. God calls it pharmakia. And very often, people who have entered into the realm of demonism, the entry level into it was the use of illicit drugs. Pharmakia, enmity, strife, jealousy, outbursts of anger, disputes, dissensions, factions, envy, and drunkenness, carousing, and things like these, in case I missed any, of which I forewarn you, as I have forewarned you, that those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Again, it's the same thing that we just read in John. The one who is born of God doesn't sin as a way of life. There's a, there's a new perspective. There's a new heart. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Now, we're not to be fruit inspectors, but on the other hand, we are to sometimes remind people, because I've had people tell me, well, you know, 
I'm saved, but I've been living with this woman for seven years. But you see, pastor, I received Jesus as my Savior. I had a guy tell me that one day. He said, I'll get to heaven. He said, I won't have much reward, but I'm going. And all I said to him is I said, the New Testament would give you very little assurance that you're going. Because if you're in Christ, you're a new creation. The old things have passed away and all things will be new. And I'm sure when we get to heaven, there will be some people that we expected to be there and they won't be. And there'll be some people that we did not expect to be there and they will be. And sometimes the fruit of a believer is not all that impressive. But still, there will be some evidence of fruit. And even in the most immoral church in the New Testament, the Corinthian church, and even the word Corinthian became a synonym for sexual immorality, Paul says, I can praise you about some things in the opening verses of 1 Corinthians 11. Sin is also described not just in terms of actions, but in terms of attitudes. Go to Matthew's gospel, Matthew chapter 5, would you? Matthew chapter 5. Of course, in the Sermon on the Mount, which is a sermon that's given on a mount, so to speak, and I know sometimes, you know, biblical definitions of words are different in the eastern side of the world than they are, say, in the west. So you go to the Sea of Galilee and people tell me, I thought it was a saltwater body the whole, my whole life. You know, like the Mediterranean Sea, that's saltwater, um, but it's a freshwater lake. So sometimes we use terms differently in what we might call a big hill, they will call a mountain. And so um, this is the Sermon on the Mount, as Augustine first called it in the fourth century. And the key to the whole sermon is given in verse 20 of chapter 5, for I say to you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of God. That's the crux of the whole sermon that unless you have a righteousness that goes beyond the scribes and the Pharisees, why? Because they had an external righteousness. And so they externally prayed, they externally fasted, they externally gave, they externally followed the law, but there was no real heart change. And that's why Jesus said, you need a different kind of righteousness and not the kind that they had. And they were considered the holy man of the day. Now, verse 27 of chapter 5, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. He's quoting the sixth commandment, right, from the Decalogue. Exodus 20, Deuteronomy 5, those are two central passages every believer should know. Exodus 20, Deuteronomy 5, those are the two places in the Old Testament, where you find the Ten Commandments. In Deuteronomy 5, there are some things that are highlighted that aren't highlighted, say, in, in Exodus 20. In Deuteronomy, the Deuteros we get our um, English Bible title. Remember, the titles are not inspired. Second law. So it's at the end of Moses' life, and he recaps the Ten Commandments, and he gives some detail. In the Deuteronomy passage that you don't pick up in Exodus, it's very helpful. Like the first commandment with a promise, that it may be well with you and that you might live long on the earth. And Paul quotes that in Ephesians 6. So he's coming here to a second practical illustration of the difference between outward righteousness and inward righteousness. God said, you shall not commit adultery. God created sex so God can manage sex. And whenever God says no, it's not to rob us, it's to provide the best for us. He's trying to protect what he created. And of course, even the Pharisees of the day said, well, adultery is wrong. It's wrong to take another man's wife. It's wrong to steal from another man. But they defined adultery only in terms of the physical sexual union. But I say to you, verse 28, that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And so he's taking it to another level. He's taking it to the heart issue. Now, certainly physical adultery 
has greater ramifications than just simply adultery in the heart, but they're both wrong. And sometimes people say, well, I've already committed adultery in the heart. I might as well just go all the way. But Jesus wants to make it clear that God is interested not only in sanctifying you physically, but mentally, spiritually, in every respect. That's what he speaks of, how we will be fully sanctified in body, soul, and spirit at the rapture, but he begins that process today. And so there's a difference between looking at someone saying, oh, she's an attractive woman, and staring and lusting in the heart. There's a major difference. Martin Luther said, this is a paraphrase, he said, you know, I, I, I can't keep the birds from flying over my head, but I can keep them from nesting in my hair. Of course, he was speaking in reference to the subject of lusting with the heart. So there Jesus makes clear that heart adultery is wrong just as physical adultery is wrong. Someone says, I can't help myself. Oh, if you can't help yourself, then why did Jesus call it a sin? You can't help yourself. But we live in a day where the mind goes wild. I was speaking with my dentist yesterday. Oh, I meant to tell you, these cards are available for you. Um, these are, we're going to promote them on Sunday, but you're here tonight. And so these are rubber banded in five. So I was going you know, to get my annual cleaning or biannual cleaning yesterday. And, and I was witnessing to the uh, lady who was doing my teeth. It was kind of difficult to do, you know. <laughs> But uh, in the end, I asked her the diagnostic questions, and the dentist, I've known him for th almost 30 years now. And uh, Anyway, uh, where was I going with this? <laughs> I had a good idea. I forgot it. Uh, I had a, I've had a long week. I haven't had much sleep. I'll remember it here in a second. In either case, um, there are heart issues that are involved that we must recognize, and we can't ignore those heart issues. We need to see what God says about the Spirit as much as He does about the body. And so in this other text in 1 John 3, go to 1 John, 1 John for just a moment. 1 John, and pick it up in verse... Uh, Let's pick it up in verse 15. I'll pick it up in verse 13. He says, 1 John. So there's, if you're new to the Bible, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John are right towards the back of the Bible. There's a John wrote five books, the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John, and then he wrote the Revelation. In between 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, there's that one little short book called Jude where we have the Acts of the Apostates. And I know many are live streaming. Some have already written me and told me that are new Christians, and they're excited. So I want you to learn your Bible and find your way around it. 1 John 3, look at verse 15. Do not be surprised, brethren, if the world hates you. Oh, I know where I was going uh, with that illustration, so let me come back to it. <laughs> uh, we were talking about how, yeah, you can control your mind. Of course, most Christians put their mind in a garbage bin, and they feed on the average television programs. And he was talking about how I Dream of Jeannie went off the air. They removed it because you could see in the latter season her belly button, and they took it off the air because of that. It was too sensual. And we were just talking about look at where we've come from and where we are today. And we've really relaxed our mind, and we've said, oh, it's not all that bad. And if you relax your mind and you don't gird up your mind for action, you'll live in a lost bucket. And God doesn't want us to live that way. We're the losers. Here we are, verse 15. Thank you, Lord, for helping me remember that. Do not be surprised, brethren, if the world hates you. You shouldn't be surprised if the world hates you. Why? Because as Jesus said, the servant is not greater than his master. Remember, we looked at that verse recently in the three expressions where Jesus quotes that, and one expression is the realm of persecution. Verse 14, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. 
He who does not love abides in death. So love for the people of God is a sign that you are born again. And if this love is not evident in a person's life, then you have every reason to question their salvation. So he's making, an ex- he's making a comparison here. The world hates us. Why? Because of what we stand for. And the hatred is growing, especially as sin grows in these last days. So they hate us. But if we know the Lord, we'll love his people. We won't hate them. We'll love them. We have a love for the brethren. And there are many people who have no care for the people of God. And it can only mean one of two things. Either A, they're out of fellowship with God, or B, they've never really been saved. Christianized, but not born again. And so... Verse 15, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. So every man who has the venom of hatred in his heart, John says is a murderer. Jesus said the same thing in the Sermon on the Mount. So what's he saying? He's saying, look, God looks not just at actions. He looks at our attitudes. And if someone says, I just hate that person, so I just wish they were dead. You're committing murder. I wish that person didn't exist. You're committing murder. And that's the attitude contextually that some people have towards the church, towards God's people. But those who have really been regenerated will have a love for God's people. And sometimes you're battered and bruised by the people of God, but still you love them, and you care for them, even with their faults. And so this is one of the truth tests that he gives in 1 John. These things I've written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God. What things? Well, this is one of those things. We abide in the word. We love the brethren. We have a new moral compass that has taken us in a new direction. So I went through five of those just from 1 John last time, if you were here. These are the things I'm writing. He's saying, you can have a true assurance of salvation if you show some of these evidences that you've been born from above. All right, then number three here. We're about out of time. Every sin is not delineated in Scripture. But God gives us principles to discern whether something is sinful. And those principles are clearly spelled out. So if you notice here, we'll pick it up here next time. On one side of the spectrum, you have the negative commands of Scripture. God says these are definitively wrong. On the other end of the spectrum here on this chart I've given you are the positive commands of Scripture. These things are definitely right. So we looked at some of the things where God says these things are definitely wrong. And we could look at a number of commands, like we're to gather with God's people, we're to love one another, and all these positive commands in Scripture. Well, there's that in-between area that God doesn't address in Scripture. He doesn't say, thou shalt not smoke a cigarette. He doesn't say, thou shalt not watch an X-rated movie or maybe an R-rated movie, maybe a PG movie. Maybe a G-rated movie. I don't know. Again, the standards get lower and lower and lower. What was X in my day is R today when I was a child. Everything has changed. So how do you regulate your life in the non-gray areas? And Christians have gone to one of two extremes, either legalism or license. And the modern-day evangelical church is guilty of license. They have no standards. Why? Because their, their spiritual minds are so flattened. And if you have a standard today, they call you a legalist, when in reality, all you're doing is obeying God. So we'll pick it up here next time. We'll talk about at least four principles that God gives us for discerning whether something is right or wrong that he doesn't specifically address in Scripture. And so he gives us some guidelines, some principles that we can apply to any situation that we'll find ourselves in. Let's bow our hearts and minds in prayer. Now, Father, you are holy, and you have called us to live holy lives. And we are thankful that when we are born from above, 
You make us new people. You put your law in us. You put the Spirit upon us that we might walk in your statutes. And it's all by your grace and your unmerited favor that you've shown us. So we're asking in this day where everything that was once nailed down is coming unglued, that we would have our minds firmly fixed in the Word of God, that we would study it, learn it, and apply it to our lives that we might walk in close fellowship with you. And I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.